0: For what? what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. Jesus often used parables, a story within a story, to illustrate spiritual truths so that those who were sincerely open to a relationship with God could understand and respond with faith. Let's join Pastor Carlin now as he leads us through a series on the parables of Jesus. All right, we are going to welcome you back to your seat so we can begin. Our text tonight will be in Matthew 13, still continuing the parables of the kingdom as given by Jesus. And our verses tonight will be verses 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43. So flip open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And while you're making your way there, I'll open us with a word of prayer. So Heavenly Father, we do just pause now to focus on your word. Lord, we just acknowledge that your word is not just the words of man, but it is the holy inspired word of God. Lord, we know that uh, this did not originate in man's minds, but it originated in your mind. It's who you are, and you gave it to us. Lord, we just pray today that your word would do what you've intended it to do, as you promised it would. Pray that you would illuminate your word today, God, that you would point out things in our lives that aren't lining up or that need encouragement, that need correction, God, and that we would receive that openly and joyfully, Lord, knowing that it's because of your great love for us that you've given us your word. Lord, we just commit this time to you in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. All right, so uh, I'll read Matthew 13, 24 through 30. If you're in your Bibles, you can follow along. It'll also be on the screen. It says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while, uh, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Continuing on, verse 28. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So there's four points of this parable we're going to look at. It follows uh, uh, four sequences of events. The first point of the parable of the tares is the sowing. The sowing. The second point will be the sabotage. The third point, the surprise. And the final point will be the solution. Let's start with a quick background. So as we've been talking about in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus started speaking in parables. We talked about what parables were, and we discussed why he was speaking to the crowd in parables. Now, this was a pivotal time because uh, the Israel nation and as a whole had rejected the kingdom of heaven. They've rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus is explaining to his true followers that because of that rejection, the kingdom is going to take a new form, a new form. Last week in the parable of the sower, we saw responses to the kingdom of heaven. This week, we're gonna see opposition to the kingdom of heaven. Now this parable is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not recorded in the other gospels, um, unlike the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was in all three but this one only appears in Matthew. Now, I know God doesn't need to say something three different times in order for it to be authoritative, obviously. It only needs to say it once, but it ties in with what this new kingdom is going to look like, and there's a specific point we will look at today. Now, when we talk about a new form coming, you have to recognize what their understanding of that day was of the kingdom of heaven meaning the, the messianic kingdom. When the Messiah comes, what's the world gonna be like? And there are prophecies of God's kingdom coming and uh, wickedness being abolished and cut off and the righteous uh, shining like the, the sun and uh, no obstacles, no more temptation, no more death, uh, suffering fixed and gone and dealt with and perfect communion with God. Everybody knowing God, no one having to say, You know, Jesus who? Who is this? Uh, Everybody would know. And that's what the Jews were looking forward to. And they were struggling throughout uh, their, their, their years. And as recorded in the Old Testament, they were struggling and struggling and just looking forward to that day going, I know the Messiah is gonna come. He'll fix everything. They were trampled on. Uh, a few hundred years before Christ came, trampled on time and time again by foreign invaders who had come and desecrate their temple and kill their people. And uh, then Rome came, so here comes the Romans now and they don't like the Romans that much as you can imagine, okay? So the Romans are taking advantage of them. There's extortion, there's high taxes and they are just yearning for this new kingdom. The kingdom they've been taught about as a child, the kingdom promised by the, prof- the prophets in the Old Testament. And now the Messiah is here and his true followers know he's here and can't wait for this kingdom. But as we discussed, because of the rejection of 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 his own people, the kingdom would take a new form for a time. It wasn't gonna come physically yet. It was gonna start spiritually and it would come physically when he returned. And the in-between time from advent to advent, from when Christ appeared the first time to when Christ will appear again, that's the time that he's referring to. And he has to get this into their heads and into our heads and hearts, uh, what the kingdom of heaven is gonna look like now what it's going to look like. And so the key aspect that we will see here is that there will be opposition to the kingdom of heaven during this time and that the wicked will remain among the righteous until Christ returns again. So let's start off with verse 24 and talk about the sowing. The sowing. So Jesus told them another parable And that's key to remember here, we're on a different parable. Now, parables have one main point, and this is another parable in which Jesus explains all the key parts. And uh, we need to realize that there's some differences here. Okay, so don't be confused by seeing, you know, there's a farmer going out to sow again, and we're not still on the parable of the sower. This is another parable. Now in the first parable, the soil represented men's hearts. But now Jesus will explain that the soil represents the world. The field is the world. In the parable of the sower, the seed represented the word of God. But in this parable, the seed is going to represent the sons of the kingdom of heaven. The sons of the kingdom of heaven. Now he's still speaking to the crowds as he explains this parable. And he uses again something very familiar to them, uh, the, the likeness to a farmer sowing seed and reaping a harvest. And there's a giant issue. He talks about the kingdom of heaven and don't get tripped up on that word. Kingdom of heaven uh, is, is how Matthew describes eternity. He's saying kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, he's a king. Now John calls it eternal life, all right? It's the same thing. And John explains, look, eternal life is just knowing God forever and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So Jesus explains and he says uh, in verse 24 here, well, he gives the parable and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now he has to qualify the seed because it's gonna be very important in the story. There's not good results. We need to find out why. He sowed good seed in his field. Now the field as it's been described by Jesus later on, is going to be the world. It's going to be the world. And this is important for us to understand in order to get the purpose of this parable. The sower is gonna go out and sow seed in the world. And uh, while everyone is sleeping, and that term is just meaning that while all the people who went out and sowed and planted the seeds were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed wheats among the wheat and then went away. And it wasn't until the wheat sprouted and formed heads uh, that the weeds also appeared. And so there's a uh, kind of a change that's going on here. So the field being the world is important. And here's where if you've ever heard this preached before or you've looked into it to yourself, you might see that some people have tried to link that the field is the church. And that somehow uh, there's tares being sown in amongst the church. Okay, uh, Augustine taught that. Some other commentators have taught that. Uh, but I'm gonna give you two reasons uh, why it can't be the church. And let's start off, if you're writing this down, why when Jesus says uh, the field is the world, it is the, the world. So number one, Jesus said it was the world. <laughs> it's pretty simple there. Uh, look at verse 36. So, He's giving this and his disciples are saying, okay, explain this to us. The first parable of the sower, Jesus just explained to them privately. Now this parable, they come to him afterwards and go, explain to us the parable of the tares. There's something about this they didn't quite get and they knew it was important and they wanted to know. And so he explains it to him, verse 36. Let's put uh, verse 36 up there. And he says, This, uh, as they asked to be explained, he said, look, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. All right, Jesus himself, the term for the Messiah. I'm the one sowing the seed. The field is the world. Look at that verse 38. And the good seed stands for people of the kingdom or sons of the kingdom. So Jesus said it was the world. The world as a whole is his field. Yes, it's still God's world. So the question that people have when they try to say, okay, so, uh, but it looks like it's the church. It looks like it's false people within the church, okay? Um, here's, here's maybe one of the arguments they might use is, is, well, maybe Jesus didn't use the word for church here because it was too early on in the ministry. It wasn't the time for the church yet, okay? That didn't get birthed until Acts. Maybe he didn't uh, wanna use it and confuse him yet um, and uh, didn't wanna use the word. Uh, but here is a really simple response to that, he uses it twice in Matthew later on. The term ecclesia is a Greek word for church. And you'll remember these two times. The first time Jesus uses this word is in uh, Matthew 16, verse 18. He asks, who, who does the world say I am? And Peter gives a good confession. And Christ affirms that after Peter says, you're the son of God, the Messiah. You're the blessed one, you are the one. And, and, and God says to Peter, absolutely, you nailed it. And I'll tell you what, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. That's the Greek word ekklesia. Matthew is the only gospel in which anyone uses the word church. Because at that time, it hadn't happened yet. It wasn't birthed yet. But Matthew uses that. In Matthew sixteen eighteen. Christ says on this rock, I will build my church. Now, later on in Matthew 18, 17, the other time Jesus himself uses that word is in the manner of church discipline. He says, look, if someone uh, is is in really a lifestyle of sin or they're really sinning uh, against you or just sinning in general, uh, big time, this is a problem. You go and you confront them privately. Then he says, if they they won't listen to you, they won't hear, take, take two or three and then go and confront them again. If they won't hear, tell it to the church, ecclesia, same word. If they won't listen to the church, treat them as an unbeliever, cast them out. So Jesus knew the word for church, Jesus used the word for church, so very clearly in the parable, the field cannot be the church, cannot be the church. The first reason is because Jesus didn't use the word church, he said, it's the world. Here's the second reason it can't be the church because the point of this parable is going to be, leave the tares alone until the end of the age, let them grow and mature. We are commanded as believers inside of the church when we find a tear to confront them and cast them out. Again, Matthew 18 talks about this, cast out the tares. And here's what that means. We're not talking about casting out anyone or everyone who sins or who stumbles uh, because all of us every single day as believers are gonna be tempted, are gonna uh, slip and fall. Uh, But the difference is this, where it comes to a matter of church discipline is when you have an unrepentant heart. Giant problem. Believers should not have an unrepentant heart. When you're confronted about something, you can go, yeah, I know. You're right. I wish it wasn't true, but yes, that happened. And I don't want that. I want out. And so you walk with your brother out of that and you help each other. And Paul talks about that. He says, walk alongside them. Someone who's spiritual should be coming alongside him and being careful not to get sucked in himself, thinking that he is beyond that or above that. But... This is someone who, when confronted, even by two or three people in love in the hopes that they would say, yes, I know I need that help. Come in and, and uh, you know, I, I want freedom from that. I know there's freedom in Christ. I don't know why I'm still stumbling in that area. And uh, uh, when you don't have that, when you have someone who rejects uh, the confrontation and says, no, I, can, I still can do that. That's not a problem for me. I can live in that lifestyle of sin and not have any problem with it, and if you have a problem with it, that's your problem, I'm still gonna stay here and be fine. I still can be a Christian and be a fill in the blank and have this lifestyle of sin and can be completely unrepentant. Well, the Bible commands us in Matthew 18, Jesus himself says, then now you go to the church, you bring it before the church and you cast this person out. And the is given in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, where Paul's talking about the Corinthian church who just had a whole bunch of problems. And he's saying, "Uh, look, look, I heard that there is an egregious offense, someone who's sinning blatantly and boasting about it to the point to where the world is going, oh, that's not right. But you're like glad that he's still there. Paul says this, he says, cast him out. Cast him out, what are you doing? You've confronted him, he says, no, I like this. And you say, fine, we'll just leave him. No, cast, get him out, get him out. And Paul says, God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from, from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. And the point is this, if they're a believer that are somehow backslidden to the point where they don't wanna repent, Paul says, cast him out, let him reap the consequences of his actions and hopefully he'll come back in repentance. He'll come back to the church. He'll submit to the leaders. He'll say, I was off, I was wrong. Uh, Help, help me guys. That's what Paul hopes. That's the purpose of it. And if not, if he's not even a believer and not just not a believer, but not a believer and, uh, and going to be completely against the gospel and opposed to it, Paul says they shouldn't be receiving shelter. Shouldn't be receiving shelter from you. Cast out the tares. Does that mean cast out uh, every single unbeliever from among you? No, if somebody wants to come and listen to the gospel, let them come. Absolutely. Come and listen to the gospel being preached but if they wanna come and they wanna uh, be amongst us and blatantly oppose the gospel by how they're living their life and presenting themselves and be completely unashamed and unabashed and say, this is who I am and I'm proud of it. Uh, And we say, you know, God's word says this, you know, brother or sister, and they reject that. Then he says, cast them out. And so we know that uh, in this example that Christ gives, we know that the field is not the church, it is the world. Why? Because when we find a tear, we're supposed to confront them and then cast them out, not just let them grow and grow and corrupt others and uh, get in the way of God's work here in the ministry. So where, what is going on with these tears in the field and how did they get there? Well, that brings us to our second point, the sabotage. So now while Jesus, uh, being the sower... And the men are sleeping, okay? Uh, an enemy comes in and sows tares among the wheat. Now, some people have pointed out that, you know, well, I wonder if what they're trying to emphasize is that we should be awake and be alert. And, uh, but really, that's not what's in this text. That's not the fault here. Uh, the Bible talks about the worker being worthy of their wages, uh, having sweet sleep, no matter how much they made after they've worked hard. And so uh, there's no fault really being found with the fact that after a hard day's work of, of, you know, sowing the seed uh, with Jesus, that they're resting and relaxing. But what is being pointed out is that is when the devil works. That is when the devil works. He's gonna come in when you are exhausted and when... Uh, You've had great success for the kingdom and you're looking forward to that harvest. And he sneaks on in there and he plants the tares for this reason. He wants to destroy the crop. He is trying to uh, completely demolish uh, the sons of the kingdom. He's trying to get rid of the crop. Now, uh, we do know that Jesus has given many promises to his people We know that uh, we will be, uh, we're not immune to suffering. We're not immune to uh, being persecuted for being a Christian, but we do know that Christ will hold us in the palm of his hand. And he says, no one will pluck you out if you've come to Christ. If you're a true believer, no one's plucking you out. And so there's only so much a devil can do to you, okay? So he can't take your salvation, all right? But he is gonna try to destroy this crop, maybe in the hopes that the farmer will give up on the whole batch, kind of what the devil does. Get God angry at us so that maybe he will try to destroy us, okay? This is how the devil thinks. Now, he plants tares. And uh, the, the word for tares can mean uh, the, the similar term, maybe you've heard it called darnell. It's still called that today. It's in the uh, Middle English there. But all that means is that um, it was a weed that closely resembled Wheat, closely resembled wheat. We have a picture of both of them. Now, bear in mind, we're in the 21st century here, okay? So uh, plants do change a little bit over time. This is modern day uh, tares or Darnell versus modern day wheat. But still, you can see how close they look. Uh, You actually can't tell them apart, I guess, unless you study plants for a living. You can't tell them apart until the head bursts up until you see some fruit, you cannot tell them apart. See, they're thinking everything's okay, everything's fine. Uh, But the heads come up and all of a sudden there's a problem. Now, believe it or not, uh, this isn't just an example. This actually has happened. This is how we know it's happened. Um, uh, Maybe as far back, even to Jesus' day, uh, so in the sixth century, a Byzant- uh, Byzantine emperor named uh, Justinian I published a book of past Roman laws. And one of the laws mentions this very, uh, very same thing. It says, look, uh, someone if someone sows tares or wild oats in another man's crops to spoil them, whether secretly or by force, and talks about the consequences and punishment of that. Uh, and so this had been going on. And that just blows me away a little bit. You know, just to think that somebody would come and purposely sow tears in someone's wheat field to get back at them or to whatever and just secretly say, oh, I don't know how they all got there. It must've been, you know, the wind blew really hard. They're they're intentionally put next to, you know, like everywhere, it's not a random patch. I mean, it's flooded with these tears. Uh, People would do that. People would do that. So when Jesus uses this example, that may have actually happened before then or been happening at that time? Probably not a lot, uh, but it was not you know, completely crazy. It actually could have happened. And so uh, what's interesting is that stuff like that happens even today, even today. Uh, I've got a report I wanna read to you by uh, Reuters News, January 16, uh, 2018. Title is this, and I have a picture. French seed group says GMA protesters could force R and D relocation. This is what happened. I'll summarize the article. There was a group called Lima Grain. They're the fourth largest seed maker. And they were doing a trial in France and uh, they had modified uh, a seed. And they hadn't you know, added anything to it as a regular GMO, okay? They just edited the DNA a little bit, got around the laws, planted it, and we're testing it out. And guess what happened? I'll read this to you. The French cooperative group was targeted last month by protesters who invaded the test fields, southeast of Paris, and scattered non-commercial seed. The reason they did that, if you think about it, because when they go to test their product, they go, oh wait, it's still not doing what it's supposed to do. It must've failed. They snuck in there and did the exact same thing that Jesus is using as an example of the devil doing. Now, just a hint, that's probably not a good idea. If you're ever one of the bad, bad examples in the Bible of something the devil's doing, you probably should not be doing that. Thank you for that slide. Let's go back to the text. So yes, this happens. Um, uh, this still happens because men's hearts are evil. But more importantly, uh, the enemy, the enemy. It says in verse uh, 38, the weeds are going on before that. 39, the, the enemy who sows them is the devil. The enemy is the devil. You need to realize that you do have an enemy, you and I, and it's God's enemy. It's the devil. Uh, and he's planted tares all over the world, just as Jesus has. He spread his tares everywhere. Jesus spreads them to spread the gospel, to spread his people, and devil comes right along behind him, and he plants his people. He plants uh, his gospel. The devil has a gospel. It's exactly everything else. Work. Do it yourself. Follow this religion, follow that. Anything but following God, he will take it. What the devil does is he corrupts things. Think of Adam and Eve. Just wanna just start at square one with the devil. All right, God makes this beautiful creation, just incredible creation, never existed before, and now it's here. Adam and Eve are the crown jewel of his creation. He's speaking to them in relationship with them. And then chapter three, here comes the devil. It comes to, so is tares. It comes to get in. How can we corrupt this? You know, all the devil can do is corrupt things. Okay? God is the one that can make things or call things into existence uh, that aren't in existence. The devil can just mess it up because the devil's a created being. He's not God. And so the devil corrupts things. This is exactly what the devil does. Now, who are the tares? What are the tares? Verse 38 says, the tares. The weeds, or the tares, are the people of the evil one. The people of the evil one. They're the ones who uh, uh, are the sons of the evil one. They're the ones who are of him, who have the same mission, the same goal. They may look a lot like Christianity, but they are not. They're counterfeit wheat or counterfeit Christians. And the key in that is that they'll bear different fruit because they're a different plant. So let's move on to the third point, the surprise. So after the farmer has planted the seed and the devil has come uh, in behind him secretly and scattered his weed seeds, uh, now the surprise comes to pass. Verse 26 says, "'When the wheat had bore grain, the tares were exposed, "'and the disciples,' well, not the disciples, Uh, But the people in the story, his his servants say this, they say, didn't you plant good seed? Where did the weeds come from? And what I find funny about that is it's uh, the only parable given in Matthew 13 where there's a question and answer. And it reminds me a lot of the disciples. If you think about that. Disciples are asking these questions. It seems like something that would have been on their heart. Seems like something that they would have been wondering themselves. And maybe that's why they asked for the explanation of this parable. Didn't you plant good seeds? Where did the weeds come from? Now the sower says this, this is what Jesus' responds. He says, an enemy has done this. Not the seed's fault, not the planter's fault, not the soil's fault, an enemy has done this. There is opposition. There is another realm that has come in to my kingdom, that's coming in to corrupt my crop. And so they respond and say this. They say, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? And that definitely sounds like the disciples. <laughs> Think about it. You want us to go to get rid of them? We can't have that, right? We'll take care of it. You know, the disciples one time were trying to pass through Samaria with Jesus and they wouldn't let him through. You know, there's, you know Samaritans and Jews clashed. Long history, big explanation. So they come back to Jesus and they say, hey, look, the Samaritans aren't letting us through. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? We're willing to do it. We're willing to do it. Give us that power, Lord, and we will absolutely do that. And it says Jesus rebuked them. He says, how long do we have to bear with you? No, absolutely not. No way. You don't know what spirit you're of or where you're, no way. That's not what I want you to do. Yeah, so they say, do you want us to go pull them up? And this is what the sower says. He replies and goes, no. Again, sounds like Jesus and the sower is Jesus. No, I don't want you to do that because you may uproot the wheat. Because what has happened is the roots are now so intertwined that when you pull, if you wanna just go around yanking stuff up, you're gonna kill the wheat before it's matured into its fruit and to the harvest. And so the surprise was this. The surprise was that there was an enemy, there was opposition, but the bigger surprise was Jesus' response. It's gonna stay that way for a while. It's gonna be that way for a while. There's gonna be two Realms, two kingdoms so closely together, uh, not divided by city, not divided by ocean, not divided by anything else. But but there's gonna be kingdoms so close together. It's gonna be people sitting at one cubicle in an office, and people sitting right next to them. They're sharing the same uh, cubicle. It's gonna be neighbors. All right, different kingdoms. They're gonna be right next to each other. All over the world, this is happening. Doesn't matter where you are. And and they're saying, yeah, yeah, but the kingdom's gonna come. We're gonna get rid of them, right? Remember all that stuff we've learned about in the Old Testament, all those promises of the kingdom? We're gonna get rid of them, right? And he says, not right now. And you aren't gonna be the ones to do this. Let them remain for now. Let them grow together for now is what the wordage says. See, because both are still maturing. Unbelievers and believers are going to exist alongside each other for now. They'll temporarily remain. So what is the solution? He's got their attention. Let's look at point four, the solution, verse 30. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the age. And now we're focusing in on the main point of this parable about how wickedness is going to be judged. It's not gonna be uh, by us now, outside of the church in the world. It's not going to be our position. In the church, we are going to confront it and cast it out. Outside of the church, that's God's business. 1 Corinthians 5.13, as he said. Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the age. The judgment, the harvesters are the angels, not us. The angels will be doing the harvest. And look at how he describes this here. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now let's look at verse uh, 40 and on. He explains this. And he says this, he goes, here's the solution. You can't pull them out because you're going to destroy the wheat. So... uh, what's going to happen is at the end of the age, when everything's mature and we know what everything is, it's going to be cut down and separated, and separated. It says, at that point, the son of man will send out his angels and they're going to weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That word for causes sin is just uh, anything offensive, everything that is wicked and wrong and all who do evil. He continues now and says, then they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is describing is the final judgment, the final judgment heaven and hell, believers and unbelievers, saved and unsaved. He says that that is when it's going to be taken care of. So he says, no, you aren't going to do this right now. You're not gonna go and separate everything now and tear down what you think is this and you know, and you know what, you're gonna go blow up uh, that building because you know a lot of sinners live there? You know, I mean, come on, that is not what you're doing. That is not your job. You aren't uh, the harvester. One, you're gonna destroy innocent wheat or people that were coming to me that just hadn't come to me yet. That is not our job. We know the Spanish Inquisition, we know the Crusades. We've seen this played out when people have done this wrong and they thought the kingdom of heaven is physical. And the kingdom of heaven is is, uh, now here in the physical form. And so we need to conquer this world for Christ, which means we put a sword to their throat and say, believe, or we kill you. Christ goes, that is not how my kingdom is gonna come. My kingdom is gonna be planted. Some are going to resist, but it's gonna be planted in people's hearts and those who receive me, it's gonna grow. It's gonna blossom. It's gonna gonna give the fruit of eternal life. That is how I'm going to build my kingdom. And, but how are you gonna separate wickedness? How are you gonna get all these offensive things out? At the end of the age, when it's done. At the end of the age. Look at Matthew 25. I have this verse for you. Jesus is talking about the judgment. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will then separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right side and the goats on the left. Then referring to the goats, those who who are the tares, the weeds, those who are unrepentant sinners, who never came to Christ, rejected the Messiah. It says, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus says, you leave this to me. You leave this to me. Your job is to not go and rid the world of wickedness. Your job is to go to the world and preach the gospel. And yes, wicked things may happen to you. They did to every single disciple. It might happen. And Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. They did the same thing to me. Of course, they're gonna do that to you. Your job is not to go and cleanse the world of wickedness. That's my job and I'll do it. Do you wanna know why I'm waiting so long? Because it's so important. This is the last shot. And the Bible says that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of eternal life. Peter again says, God's patient. God's patient, so bear with his patience, knowing why he's patient. He was patient with you, talked about that before, In me. We came to him. That's why the delay. Remember, as, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 13 again, he says, let God judge those who are outside. That's his job. He'll deal with that. He does. Nothing escapes him. Let him decide who's had enough chances. Let him decide who's ripe in unrepentance and then save him for the judgment. God knows how to deliver the righteous to eternal life and to preserve the wicked for judgment. He knows how to do that. Step out of that area. And he's saying that to his disciples then because they couldn't get it through their minds. They wanted wickedness gone now and I want wickedness gone now there's a problem. If it was a few years earlier, I would have been on the other side. So in God's patience, God's patience, he says, I will take care of it, but let me tell you about the kingdom. There's gonna be opposition, hard opposition from an enemy in the form of people who are opposing the gospel, preaching a different gospel, painting a completely different picture a different church, a different gospel, uh, a different word of God from a different God. He says, you preach the gospel, you correct false teaching and you rebuke false teachers. You cast out the terrors within the church and you deal with the church, but you go out and you preach the gospel everywhere and just know there's gonna be opposition. But, He goes, but you don't know until the very end how it's all gonna turn out. And let me tell you, uh, I have seen people who I thought would never come to Christ. And I remember, you know, looking back going, hey, you know, I wish God would just come now and just knowing, well, they would be separated from God, but they deserve it, you know? It's kind of the attitude the disciples had. Bring the kingdom now. They deserve it. Guess what? I've seen one of them come to Christ this last year. I had nothing to do with it. I just heard the story. And man, how's that just convicted me and softened me even more to just think, you know what? We're gonna have opposition. Our job isn't to make the world a less wicked place. Our job is to preach the gospel and let God's word save people. That's our job. And at the end of this parable, Jesus says this, sorry, not the end of the parable, at the end of the explanation to the parable, Jesus said, he that has ears, let him hear. And he usually said that at the end of the parables to the crowds, but he's saying this in the explanation to the disciples. He who has ears, let him hear. That's why I think uh, that that applied specifically to the disciples and their question and their hard hearts, you know? I'm sure they're gonna be disappointed and let down. What do you mean we gotta bear with wickedness? For how long? 2,000 years. Come on, right? God's going, I'm gonna take care of it. You preach the gospel, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. Uh, soften our hearts, Lord, that everybody in here is looking forward to uh, the end of that verse. You say, then, then at the end of time, when you've judged the world perfectly in your righteousness, when you have separated out the good and the bad, because you know men's hearts, you know all of men's deeds and you are holy and just. You have the heart of God because you are God. You have the full justice of God. You say, at that point, then you will, you will cast out the wicked and all those who were wicked that came to you who are now the sons of the kingdom. Now they will shine like the, the sun in your beautiful kingdom. Lord, help us not become bitter. Help us not to have attitudes of of wanting to rid the world of wickedness. Yes, we need to hate sin. But Lord, help us to preach your gospel. Help us to be patient as you are patient, knowing that you're trying to save even the, the wicked, even the wicked. Jesus, amen.